Hey, I'm Andy Bush. A massive thank you to everyone who has subscribed and listened to our podcast so far. We really appreciate it. And the lovely reviews you've left us as well means a hell of a lot. Uh, Welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a journey into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. I'm joined as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the Scary as Hell Scarred for Life books upon which this podcast series is based. Every week we'll be speaking to a special guest who'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of something that has literally terrified them since they were a kid. But before we say hello to this week's guest, let's dip our toes very quickly into some of our listeners' scars where you guys get in touch with stuff that has scarred you. Hi to Martin Asplund, uh, one of our listeners. He says, my scariest thing was the following. I had a chimp stuffed toy that had quite an evil face. It had those eyes that if you t- tilted it, they opened. I started having regular dreams that I would be staring at it and its eyes would open. It was so vivid that I believe it happened and would burst out crying and asked to go to my mum and dad's bed. This started to get frequent and my mum and dad were concerned on what was scaring me. I wouldn't tell them because in a few of the dreams, the chimp had start- stated that if I told them, it would come and get me. Oh my God, the chimp's threatening him. The dreams were eventually getting worse and eventually I gave in and told them. They were sympathetic and said that I should have told them a lot earlier. They took the chimp out of my bedroom and put it at the top of their cupboard. That night, I had the worst dream where it panned into their bedroom and there was a slow pounding, oh my God, on the wardrobe doors until the pounding got louder and the chimp burst out and scuttled along the floor, came into my bedroom and got me. Still sends shivers when I think about it. Blind. Wow, that's, that's, that's terrifying. That's it seems horrendous. that. Not just the ventriloquist dummy, but there's like dummies and dolls seem to be a big area of of listener fears, don't you think? Yes, it's a it's been a real thread since episode one when Dave, obviously, you Dave, you explained your horrendous experiences with Mister Polanchin. Yes, the ginger ventriloquist <laughs> dummy. Actually, Steve, uh, when you used to work in for Ben Plant, you, you had at one point two china dolls on the staircase in the back. There were these, the sort oh of, my god! They were I'd forgotten hor- about the. They were horrifying. I think Something... my brain has blanked those. That was <laughs> I, 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 I don't blame your brain. Uh, if it's as terrifying as that, we want to hear about it. Make sure you get in touch. I'll, t- I'll tell you at the end how you can get in touch with us. We love hearing from you guys. Right, well, let's get on with it. Our guest this week is one of the founding fathers of the UK games industry. He co-founded Games Workshop in 1975 with Steve Jackson, launching Dungeons & Dragons in Europe, Warhammer, White Dwarf, Citadel Miniatures, and the Games Workshop retail chain. Following a management buyout in 91, he exited the company, embarked on a very successful career in the video games industry. He co-authored The Warlock of Firetop Mountain with Steve Jackson in 82, the first game book in the Fighting Fantasy series, which has gone on to sell 21 million copies worldwide. He's written 17 books in the series, including Death Trap Dungeon, City of Thieves. And if that wasn't enough, he's a giant in the video gaming industry, launching blockbusters titles like Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Deus Ex and Hitman. A warm welcome to Scarred for Life, for the legend that is... Uh, well, Sir Ian Livingston, welcome to Scarred for Life. What an honour to have you on the podcast. I'm delighted to be here to talk about various scars on my life. Uh, can we can we just say straight away, uh, we're obviously on, on a video chat here. I, I think the uh, the guys are, are seeing this too. Is, is that an incredible board game collection in the background? Is that what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, some people like surround themselves with books. I surround myself with games. There's 1,500 board games in here, probably about wow. Oh, wow. 300 video games. Oh. Me and Andy are lifelong gamers, role-playing games, board games. So this is yeah. a massive... You can see my paltry 
part of my poultry collection just up on the, you need, the bookcase. You need to try harder. <laughs> I do. I've got, I've got try more. Try harder, Steve. But yeah, well, basically I've had to sell and give loads away over the years, which is always... That's it's like terrible. Gar- How could you possibly... I know. That's like giving children away. It is. It really is. I've it got is. so many regrets. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because obviously, you know, when people do interviews and stuff on TV now, I think they strategically place uh, books in the background to kind of signal slightly to, you know, so the audience can get a, a, an idea of the kind of people they are. Ian, have you got, have you got board games in certain locations as a kind of like a bit of a, of a map of your psyche there in the background? I see Axis and Allies uh, there on the left and a choir just down at the bottom. Well, I mean, there's three walls here and uh, completely covered with, with games. I mean, I'm not trying to promote anyone in particular. I mean, you, you oh, keep wow. going. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's incredible. Oh, God. And, and over here, you've got fighting, fancy, fighting fancy game books in that corner. Wow. That's, that's a cave. That's a cave if ever, if ever <laughs> I saw one. Well, let, let's start with that, actually, as well. I mean, you know, Steve alluded to it a little bit there, but... Kind of everything I do now, whether it's radio or creative energy, uh, board games, I feel like OTU and what you guys did back in the, the late 70s and, and 80s, uh, in with Dungeons and Dragons, fighting fantasy, it's kind of opened people's kids' minds, really, to something else. But I always think about, if that was, say, year zero, what was before Dungeons and Dragons and, and, and fighting fantasy? What, what we, was there anything before you guys created this amazing universe that's just got bigger and expanded ever since? Well, not so much with sort of medieval fantasy games, but there were games, uh, a lot of family games put out by Waddington's games, obviously Monopoly and Cluedo and Risk and Formula One, but they didn't really kind of do it for me particularly. I used to play chess at school, which was obviously a great game, but abstract game. It's a very pure game, but we wanted kind of strong thematic games. So the only game I remember playing apart from tabletop gaming, which we did with battle, mass battles of painted miniatures of Napoleonics or ancients, was a game called Diplomacy, which is a a strategical negotiation game where you take control of a a, a kind of country empire and you you try and invade other people's territory, getting alliances and allegiances with your fellow players and doing massive backstabs. And so much so, I know somebody didn't speak to somebody else about four weeks afterwards when they had double-crossed and a horrendous <laughs> move with them in uh, in, the, in a game of diplomacy. So I think that got everybody excited who wanted to play strategical games in the in the 60s, but there really wasn't much. And um, that's why Steve Jackson, John Peake and I decided to start our own company. We've been school friends in, in Altrincham in Cheshire and went our separate ways, but we met back up in London and shared a flat and had pretty boring low-paid jobs and stayed in and played a lot of board games some which were now better and there was more choice from companies like avalon hill yeah put out a range of games and spi another kind of war games uh, manufacturer and we thought wouldn't it be great if we could start some sort of community so this was um in January 1975. So we put out a newsletter called Owl and Weasel and uh, sent it out to anybody we knew in games. And one, and I've no idea to this day how it happened, ended up on the desk of Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And he read it and wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Would you like to talk about my game I've just um, published a few months ago? And that was Dungeons and Dragons. And it didn't look much. It was a white box with a 
very average illustration on the cover. Um, and when you open it up, there was no board inside. There's three largely unintelligible rule books and more of a designer game kit than a game in itself. But that game opened up your imagination like no game had ever done before. And I don't think any game ever will again. It was the first role-playing game where you take on the roles of heroes and wizards and clerics and thieves and go these fantastic journeys of the mind, effectively theatre on, on the fly, exploring the dungeon that's been created by a, a player who's sitting outside the game. And through conversation, you explore the dungeons, killing monsters and finding treasure. And if you do well, you level up and you get very very attached to your alter ego and your little and you have a little miniature figure that you paint up to represent yourself in the games but there was that sort of real social fun of just role playing together and it was of course it was very embryonic in the 70s so we ordered six copies of D&D because that's all we could afford and on the back of that huge order we got the exclusive 3 year distribution agreement all of Europe oh, wow um, wow because Gary was also operating out of a flat in, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. But he was just delighted to have a Euro European distributor, even though we were kind of, you know, kind of virtually broke living in Shepherd's Bush flat. And, and you know, with Gary Gaiax, obviously the, the creator of, of Dungeons and Dragons, what, what was the kind yeah. of story with him? What kind of guy was he like? And do people still realise, you look back at it's now in, you know, in movie theatres at the moment, that the, the role-playing game is still going strong, there's computer game spin-offs of it. Do people realise yeah. he's the guy behind it? Well, if you're a, a passionate player and do it as a hobby, you will know it was created by Gygax and Dave Arneson. Um, but I don't think most people would know who it was originally because I don't think he's credited on the box anymore. Um, but he was a gregarious, larger-than-life character, raconteur, huge ability to put out reams of notes and stories and rules and he made it happen and we'd met Dave Arneson who'd come up with a kind of role-playing concept in a campaign called Blackmore a kind of tabletop uh, game that he was running with effectively a dungeon master type of thing but it wasn't quite and Guy Gats had written these set of rules called Chainmail which had a supplement which had fantasy uh, miniatures included in the tabletop battles and Gygax played Blackmore and thought how he could incorporate his chainmail characters into this sort of Blackmore campaign and because there weren't any rules written down by Arnson so he set about and wrote 50 pages of rules and that was Dungeon Dragons so he was he was a force behind it actually happening. Why do you think fantasy is so popular with games? I know it's a, it's a dumb, I'm, I'm the dumb one here about games, mm -hmm. but why do you think fantasy itself is so popular? Is it because it's an open universe you create everything yourself rather than be constrained by something? Uh, well, everyone likes science fiction and fantasy novels and, and, and films, but as a game, fantasy worlds are just amazing because you can do these incredible things in the comfort of your own home, stuff you would never or could not impossible to do, you know, killing monsters and defeating dragons and finding these legendary treasures and going these really dangerous journeys together in a world that's totally magical and 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 draws on mythology and fairy tales and you know tales of yore from millennia ago so it's this rich world 
and it's very exciting and it's just amazing for imagination yeah that's, i think that a point i was going to pick up on what you've just said ian that um i got into role playing through D when i was nine years old and i remember i still remember the day it happened and this is Dungeons and Dragons. In it, you join a group of adventurers exploring a monster-filled dungeon. It's the world's number one fantasy game, and they're going to sell 40,000 this year in the UK alone. But why? When you open it, it doesn't look like an ordinary game at all. There's no board, there's no little plastic counters or hotels, just some funny-shaped dice and a book of rules. So what's the fascination? There's a legendary board and role-playing shop in Liverpool called Games of Liverpool at the time that opened a smaller branch around the corner from my mum and dad's when I was yeah. nine. It was run by a guy called Roger, forgotten his surname. My God, that's it, yeah. I One of my closest friends, he's still my manager at the little cafe that I work at, used to work at yeah, Games he, of Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. We used, to sell games. we used to sell games to him. We supplied all his... Yeah, yeah, lovely guy. Um, I remember, basically, I've always been into Star Trek and I remember excitedly going round the corner to the little Games of Liverpool branch around the corner of my mum and dad's. And it would, at the, st- the front of the shop would be the executive toys and the Cluedos and the Monopolies, the, the mainstream safe stuff that the public understood. Yeah. And the further in to this store you got, you got to the back of the shop where the lighting dimmed. And that was where the, the role-playing games were and <laughs> the SPI, incredibly complex war games were. And I remember this little alcove that had loads of gaming magazines and I saw yeah. a copy of White Dwarf, yeah. which had the Starship Enterprise on the front, and excitedly took it down, looked through, and it had a little miniatures war game scenario for Citadel Miniatures, Star Trek The Motion yeah. Picture so, miniatures. So I bought it there and then, didn't know what White Dwarf was. Star Trek was on the front. Took it home, looked at the Star Trek rules, then saw this D- an AD&D scenario called The Halls of Tizen Thane in the centre. Yeah, that was created by Albi Fiori. That's the one. And I swear to God, I still remember taking it to bed, sitting in bed. I didn't know what hit points were. I didn't know what an armour class was. I was absolutely gobsmacked by this intricate map of this mansion. I was creating my own stories by going through it. And I can honestly say that I'm... I'm talking to someone who indirectly changed my entire life. It was a religious experience. Well, I'm glad you. Got, I'm glad you weren't. I'm glad you weren't scarred for life. <laughs> Not at all. It was incredible. It, it literally changed the path of my life. It was great. Good to hear. Yeah, I mean, we 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 dumped Alan Weasel after 25 issues and um, and started White Dwarf magazine to kind of up our game to kind of. We created a glossy, glossy magazine, so it kind of raised the perception of workshop because we were still working very much hand to mouth. We, in 1976, Steve and I decided to go full time. John decided not to join us because he wasn't enamoured by role playing games. So Steve and I went to the states and uh, to meet Gary Gygax and TSR Hobbies and all the fledgling games companies that were starting up, and um, ordered loads of stuff and had it sent back to my girlfriend's at the time's address because we'd had no we'd left our own flat we came back to the uk with nowhere to live and no office and no money <laughs> and uh bloody and hell. um so we we went to the bank manager thought 
and said, uh, hello, um, we've got this amazing <laughs> game called Dungeons and Dragons. It's a role-playing game where you kill monsters and find treasure and go to these amazing journeys of the mind. Can we have £10,000, please? <laughs> and it looked as rather like a dog watching television. He looked <laughs> freaking out, not knowing what to do or say, and asked to leave. And we were really annoyed, but I guess in, in his defence, if you look back at it, we were hardly investor-ready. We had no cash flow projections or investment memorandum or yeah. or business plan at all. All we had was our enthusiasm. But that meant that we had to, with the limited funds we had to, we managed to get a, uh, an office the size of a bread bin at the back of an estate agent where we could do our mail orders from. We had to live in Steve's van for three months because um, we never enough left over for rent. But we joined a squash club that was nearby so we could have a shave and a shower, etc. in the morning. <laughs> wow, it's crazy. I mean, Bloody it's like I, I, you, you've obviously you've got a book out at the moment called Dice Men, which is uh, yeah. written by yourself and Steve Jackson. I mean, I always think the, your, the, the startup story of this is, is, is so iconic. It'd make a great film, don't you think? Or, or a Netflix series or something at the very least. Yeah. I've had a couple of approaches for the documentary rights to Dice Men because it's a, it is a kind of, it is a funny old journey. Oh, we could have gone gone to the wall several times, but our passion took us through because even though we live in the van, it's pouring down in the middle of October because you're still doing what you're enjoying doing. And so we were never motivated by money. Obviously, mm. success came later, but that wasn't the motivating factor. It was just to determine your own destiny in something that we love, which was gaming. So, um, so then we... 76 and then 77 we started white dwarf magazine and 78 when things started to actually take off a bit we opened our first shop in 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 hammersmith in west london and and they also started citadel miniatures that's that same year it reminds me a lot the story of the startup reminds me of it there would seem to be an era the kind of late 70s early 80s of the great british entrepreneur i always think of you in the same breath as kind of clive sinclair as a just utter passion i'm gonna make Clive Sinclair was like, I'm going to make an incredibly affordable home computer that every kid in Britain is going to have. You were kind of like, yeah. I'm going to introduce kids, teenagers, adults to these amazing games that you've never seen yeah. before. I mean, the, the original Games Workshop store, the, there's an iconic photograph that's in Dicemen of that huge line of kind of spotty yeah. kids going right the way down the street, which must have been an incredible day, the day that opened. It was. We had no idea how many people were going to turn up. And we kind of bet the farm on this, what little that we had. <laughs> we're totally vindicated. It was amazing. I mean, it wasn't on the high street. It was way off the beaten track in Hammersmith. But um, it was great that people were determined to find it no matter what. And um, that was just an amazing day. Though. And, you know, the workshop started to, to grow. And then we, did. we opened our first shop really because the other shops didn't want to stock our games because it couldn't get the heads around that you needed not just the box set you needed supplements and miniatures and magazines and stuff so they didn't know how to deal with it but we knew the following was great just because the circulation of white dwarf kept growing and growing uh let's let's talk about uh fighting fantasy books which obviously have sold millions and millions of copies over the years one of our previous guests on scarred for life uh, the brilliant charlie higson uh, has written a fighting fantasy book uh, yeah. The Gates of Death. And he told us uh, in our chat that he thought he was going to just be able to wing it and just get away with it and write it on the fly. And and he got he admitted that he had a quite a, a rude awakening to just how complicated it is to design out um, a fighting fantasy book. He even said that you he, you showed him one of your maps 
for how you make one and it nearly blew his mind yeah yes well he deserved to have his mind blown because he thought he could do it and... <laughs> the way he described it was almost like kind of untangling spaghetti yeah oh it's, they are a nightmare well it's it's right you're writing several stories at once with a with, with a branching narrative but you have to keep bringing it in to kind of pinch point so Otherwise, it could just keep expanding exponentially. So you have to have an overarching storyline with an objective, and then you, you're presenting choices at every point to the reader who have to go simplistically left or right or open the door or don't open the door. Do they find a key? Do they not find a key? And so, and then when you move on into the adventure, you'll, you'll come to a locked door, and therefore you need a key, which you have to go back earlier in adventure and put the key where somebody might be able to find it. Then you have to balance the economy. So there's not too much gold, not too little gold. You have to do, balance the difficulty level. So it's actually possible to get through. Wow. And, and then make sure oh, that the whole thing works as a care. No, there's no sort of cul-de-sacs or dead ends or stuff. So it is a nightmare, but the way it all came about was quite interesting because at Games Workshop, we used to run these events called Games Day. And in 1979, uh, a Penguin Books editor came along, was fascinated by everyone playing D&D and role-playing games and said, would Steve, Steve, I said to Steve and I, would be interested in writing a book about the hobby of role-playing. So we said, well, without even thinking about it, well, why don't we write a book that allows you to experience a role-playing uh, game? She said, yeah, that sounds great. Send in a synopsis. So we had to think of something else. I thought, well, how could we distill the the role-playing elements of D&D and other role-playing games into book formats, whereby the book replaced the dungeon master. So we thought we have to make it multiple choice. Um, we have to make it branching. And then we also need a simple game system uh, for the combat and for to have make it into a game book. And so these three attributes, skill, stamina, and luck. And the difference, of course, between a a normal book, which is a linear passive experience and a fighting fantasy game book in which you are the hero and given choice and agency, an interactive book, is that people really enjoyed taking control in the decision-making. So it's participating in the story as opposed to just being somebody on the outside looking in. And that's why they took off so well. And um, even though they weren't promoted at all well, the first one, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, came out in August 82. And without any promotion from Penguin because they didn't really know what they were doing with it. But then it started to take off in certain schools and then the whole network of schools linked up and, of course, word of mouth is the best variety, as we would say these days, you could possibly have. And um, But it wasn't all plain sailing. They did sell 20 million copies ultimately, but the beginning they were wow. criticised a lot because the, like, the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide about them saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're just bound to get possessed by the devil. <laughs> a, worried, a worried housewife in deepest suburbia phoned in her radio station and said, having read one of my books, her son levitated. So the kids are thinking, <laughs> for pound fifty, I can fly? That's amazing. We'll have some of that. That's really the, cool. The vicar, <laughs> yeah. the vicar in Chelsea, where Penguin Books' office was, threatened to shackle himself to the railings until they were banned. There were petitions sent in by parents saying these books 
are harmful because children are using their imaginations too much. The whole world was against them. I remember being on Saturday Superstore talking to John Craven about the top 10 books. And I had number one, two, and three in the top sellers list. So I was starting off with 10, nine, eight, and finally get to mine. He says, well, you've got all these three, haven't you? I said, yes. He said, why? When are you going to write a proper book? I said, well, you know, getting children reading, surely that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And over, over time, parents and teachers in particular realized it is a really good for reluctant readers. They're really good for creative writing. They're really good for literacy. They're really good for critical thinking. And actually, reluctant readers are now enjoying reading. So a long time afterwards, we've seen as a, as a as a positive thing, which which is great, of course. You should have just asked him when he was going to become a proper newsreader. Just get your own back <laughs> yeah. straight. Get your own back straight away. That's... Back at you, Craven. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going back to the the whole thing as a, as a gamer myself from a very early age. Even from that first issue of White Dwarf that I bought, there was a kind of an underground illicit feeling to playing these games. Me and my friends became addicted to them, but the magazines were often half-naked barbarian women and obviously there's demons and that whole moral hysteria that you mentioned that blew up in the 80s. And as a D&D RPG gamer... I kind of felt on the outskirts of that because I was like, I'm just having a good time with me, mate. My, one of my big memories of Dungeons & Dragons is I can't detach Books Fizz winning Eurovision from one of the worst experiences I ever had with Dungeons & Dragons. Me and my mates were playing a module called S1, the Tomb of Horrors, which was notorious for just being sudden death down the stairs kind of thing. It will literally kill you in a heartbeat. My character got killed literally going down the stairs to this dungeon. We'd been playing for five minutes and my mate was running it and he was a proper rules lawyer. He said, no, you're dead. You've got to go. You're out the game. So I flounced off like a diva downstairs <laughs> and watched Books Fizz win Eurovision with my arms folded <laughs> with a big grump. So every time I see those skirts getting whipped off, I think, oh, bloody tomb of horrors. But it, it's the kind of the whole moral hysteria thing even... A friend of mine, Chris, who used to work in Games of Liverpool, one of his friends in school, got kicked down the stairs by his own father when his dad found out that he played D and D. Yeah. Because there were, what what do you think about that kind of? How did that affect you at the time? That kind of being linked to this nonsense. Well, it, it was called the Satanic Panic, and wow. people were concerned that I said it interacted with ghouls and demons, even though you weren't. That was some sort of kind of moral corruption and you know black magic or devil worshipping or whatever it is they wanted to attach something terrible to it when as you say all you're doing is having a fun time role playing with your mates in a fantasy world yeah yeah but i hope that's not the second time this evening you've been scarred for life this <laughs> is a running theme going on here <laughs> ending I mean... up with box fizz on your mind forever oh, never <laughs> never uh ian i was going to ask obviously then you, you know you've you've been hugely successful in the world of video gaming in the background there you've got one of your creations lara croft um uh do you feel that the way video games have gone now where the, the, the graphics seem to have got better and better and your imagination is working a lot less because i remember like the original kind of bbc electron adventure games that i used to love like twin kingdom valley etc which were kind of text and one picture that looked like c-fax you had to use your imagination like I, I love the way they used to have the front cover of the game had this kind of incredible oil painting with loads of action but then it was just very limited information so you had to fill in the gaps what do you think about modern video gaming now because I, I feel like I, I'm 
I started off in video games and have left video games behind to go back towards board gaming and role playing. Where, yeah. where, where do you see it as it where it's at now? Well, video games is is a broad spectrum of content from cinematic, almost realism in 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 the characterization and the characters and story of of a triple A console game um, and games like Baldur's Gate are actually almost like being there. But at the other end, you've got indie games that are more concerned with the art and the and the gameplay and less focused on 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 graphics. But there's there is a huge broad church and there's something for any everybody. Yeah. And you know, it's a two hundred and fifty billion dollar euro industry. Three billion people are playing it. And yeah, you know, the UK have been particularly good at making games. Um, I mean, Grand Theft Auto Five came out ten years ago, generated a billion dollars in three days of sales. Wow! Extraordinary, bigger than any entertainment franchise and any other medium. And yet it got criticised mainly for its content. It was eighteen rated, like the way films are, are rated, and therefore children shouldn't have been playing Grand Theft Auto. They should, and the media should have really focused on what a great achievement this is, this sort of mm. cinematic technology that allows you interact to interact in kind of virtually real worlds. Um, and yet they're criticized. So, but I think if you part your prejudice, prejudice against one or two titles that children shouldn't be playing and think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game, you can't get through a game without problem solving. You learn intuitively. You can fail in a face, fail in a safe environment. Um, you're encouraged to try again. So over time, everyone can be a winner, like unlike in an exam where it's a moment in time when you're judged either able or less able. And games like Minecraft, uh, Digital Lego, super creative. A child can learn contextually by applying the heat of a furnace to a silica sand. They create glass and put that glass in an environment. And that's kind of learning by doing, and they won't forget that. And games like Roller Coaster Tycoon, effectively a management simulation. The physics of building the rise, the pricing required to make it financially successful, and the staffing levels needed to to run those rides. And if you get it wrong, kind of tweak the parameters, and eventually everyone gets it right. So there's an awful lot of things of meta skills and skills for life happening when you're playing games. The thing I like about the the criticism of GTA in particular was I saw an article where the, the journalist said, you can beat prostitutes to death with a baseball bat and take their money. And I just thought, that's a choice you made in the game. The game yeah. didn't ask you to do that. You chose to do that in the game. So yeah. it's just a weird thing to criticize it for. A choice you made. It seemed very strange. Yes, but I say they are 18 rated, so that choice shouldn't be given to, to younger, younger yeah. adults, of course. Mm. Uh, I mean, what, I was reading an article recently as well, just talking about some of the new massive, you talk about the AAA ones like Starfield that's just come out, etc., where you can kind of do anything you want. And the, and the article was kind of saying that it was, it was a bit of a, a red flag for the future of some of these games because the thing now is to let the player do whatever they want. Uh, you know, and everything's about feeling innocence and being free and doing doing whatever you want with kind of not no repercussions, but uh, the game world adapts around the player. Whereas you know, before there was kind of like Steve was just talking about that element of like dying or game over, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do, do you think things are a little bit 
bit too free form in terms of some of these games now where the player the player agency is kind of reduced a little bit because you can the game molds around you and your choices too much well again it depends what you want to do there are still single player games where you go from a to b following a storyline and the choices of whether you succeed in solving the puzzles or fighting the monsters and and achieving your goal and then of course there is a, as you say there's a lot more noise these days around uh, social games um, and people playing together and metaverse games like Fortnite or World of Warcraft where and like in Fortnite you can not just play together play you can hang out together you can go watch a Travis Scott uh, concert inside that game and there's also the kind of creator economy inside games now where you can actually build content and people like to craft they like to personalize they like to customize they like to be involved in 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 their play areas. Doesn't mean to say it becomes a sort of terrible experience that's frightening or evil or 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 worse. It's just it's just playful. You can build build your own villages and and survive in those villages. So it's kind of emulating real world experience to be able to craft inside your game. I think people are really enjoying that because it's the maker generation that's enjoying that particularly. Who'd have thought back when you guys were starting off in the seventies, it would it would pan out into so many different you know, you know little ways of enjoying yourself and playing different computer games and everything as well. So it's amazing that the legacy that lives on. Uh, let, let's get down to the brass tacks then of Scarred for Life. In uh, this podcast, works in the way that you you bring with you three things that have scarred you and uh, changed you in the past. Could we please have your first scar then, please, Ian? Well, I, I wouldn't. I, the first one is literally scarred. Um, I was about eight or nine years old, um, playing with the kid next door on the lawn, and his father was an awful person. Uh, really, had zero. He had a kind of charisma bypass at birth, I think. Yeah, and was predict, particularly nasty to everybody he spoke to, and especially me for some reason, and. Um, on this particularly hot summer's hot summer's day, he was mowing the lawn with his own kind of old rotary thing. Obviously, before petrol um, assisted lawnmowers were around, and um, somehow I can't actually remember because this is like you know nearly sixty-five years ago. Yeah, is that um, he? His son called out to him and called out to me, and I turned round. I was sitting on the grass. And put my left hand out, and the lawnmower went over my hand. Oh, oh, yeah. And then that was half of my third finger, like kind of dangling off. So oh. we, he he did actually volunteer to wrap a tea towel around it and take <laughs> to the hospital in his Morris Minor because my parents weren't in, and uh, it all got stitched up. So I got a bit of a funny shaped left uh, third finger. So. That's literally scarred five. That's my first incident. Is that character building? Having someone like that happen to you, Ian, would you say? It's a character building thing? Well, I didn't get a fear of lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> Did that make you kind of squeam, squeamish or anything like that? Because obviously a lot of, uh, it just a lot made of these... Me, it just made me hate him even more. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a lawnmower injury is going to be your, your first scar. That's fantastic. Let's go to your second scar then, please, Ian. Um, this was again school, so it's probably about 19, 
59 or early 60s, I can't remember. So I was 9, 10 or 11. I have no idea how I'm old. And I can't remember if it was with a school group or with a scout group. But I do remember it was with one person and we all had shorts on and we went up a mountain. It could have been Kinder Scout in the Peak District um, with this with this scout master or teacher. I can't even remember to say, but it was only one of them. And it started snowing. Yeah. And clearly he was getting lost, but didn't show that he was getting lost. And because it all went white everywhere. And he kept saying, well, I think we're going to go this way now and going this way now. And we were all happily because we were kind of oblivious to his obvious near panic experience going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got to a point and he said, OK, we're going to have a rest now. And he gets out, he had this little aluminium tin can thing and a little burner underneath. And he gets out of his backpacks, all he had was two apples. And he slices <laughs> his two apples into like 16 slices and sets about frying them in this pan. Frying apples in a pan. Yes. <laughs> and he oh. says, well, this is going to keep you warm, lads, for when we go back down the mountain. Clearly, I had no idea how we are going to get back down the mountain. And um, anyway, obviously we did. But um, I have no idea because there's no mobile phones. I've Obviously, he had a compass, but I'm not sure he knew what he was doing with it. So um, the safety people would have gone mental with him today, of course. It's weird though, because you, you look you look back at you know I was going to mention this earlier on actually. Um, Steve was talking about the map that he found in uh, White Dwarf, and and one thing that I think connects everything that you've done, particularly in the early days with with fighting fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons, is drawing maps. We used to draw maps. My dad would read the fighting fantasy books out, uh, and then me and my brother would would try and draw along a map of the dungeon, uh, you know, the yeah. Warlock of Firetop Mountain or whatever, on little on that graph paper they used to get, uh, you know, from maths class, etc. Yeah. And some of the maps, some of the drawings of maps are absolutely beautiful. And I know there are, there, are, there are kind of like role-playing games now which are just based on drawing a map of like a, a randomly generated dungeon. There's something in drawing yeah. that kind of stuff. So I do wonder whether, we, we, you know, a lot of the times we look at these early life experiences and whether they have formed any particular important, you know, synapses of, of, of you for the future. Maybe maybe that map element of it that is then hardwired into what you ended up creating with the Fighting Fantasy books was maybe there on, on that summit of Kinder Scout as your teacher had a nervous breakdown, frying apples. <laughs> well, definitely adventure and exploration has definitely been part of my, you know, world creating in, in Fighting Fantasy and, and other role-playing games I've been associated with in some video games. So, yeah. And the third scary bit was also location-based as well. My third scarred story. Oh yeah, let's well let's let's go for that right now. Let's have since we're on this uh, terrifying run. Let's have your third scar, please, Ian. <laughs> well, it was um, 1988, and I had a, a sailing boat, and um, with a friend called Mike and two girls, we decided to uh, have sailing to down to Spain, and uh, we were in in Brest on the northwest, south, of, uh, in France. And we'd have eaten and we decided to sell across the Bay of Biscay to La Caruna. 
And so we set off, and after about a day, um, the the barometer dropped significantly. And that, you probably know that the Bay of Biscay is renowned for its wild storms. A bit tasty. With very steep waves and strong winds. And um, in this particular instance, we saw the barometer drop to awful and the, the winds kicked in and it started to get a bit lumpy and we carried on sailing to La, La Caruna which is on the northwest tip of, of Spain from Brest in a straight line and by uh, my I had this, this sleeping on the watch from 8 or 12 and by, when the 12 got up for my watch with one of the girls and it was like blowing a four six seven and got up to eight and this means that you know 10 15 foot high waves and so mike and and the other girl went downstairs for their their rest and um so i ended up having to strap myself with harnesses to to the wheel and then mike gets up and starts wailing like a banshee because he'd been complaining about toothache for about the last 12 hours and it had an impacted tooth and he went delirious and he was the real sailor. I wasn't the actual sailor. He was a navigator and captain. So what happened was this storm got up to force nine. So you're talking about 20 foot high waves now, sometimes taller and they're very steep. And so when you're looking, when the boat sank down into the trough, you look over, over the back and it's like a wall of water coming up and you can't see anything, and then you go up and you slam down the next one. So it had to pull in most of the sails to a tiny bit of sail just so you could keep steering. And the girls just took it in turns to uh, help me little cups of soup occasionally. God knows how they managed to warm to warm it up on the because the the oven was at this horrendous angle. We'd have to lash Mike into his bunk because he was talking absolute shite. <laughs> delirium. He's <laughs> like a madman in battle, the way he was talking. Yeah. Meanwhile, the boat was going up and down. It went on for hour and hour through the, night, through the next day, into the next night. And then my eyes now like like little tiny slits and I was strapped to, this, to the wheel and that's about 36 hours and it was like two o'clock in the morning i saw some lights in 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 far ahead uh, we had no idea where i was because all the everything had crashed down all the electrics had gone and it was just a it was just and the boat had twisted so much that all the doors inside down below had come off the hinges and started flying around the cabin whoa me. i'd hate that and um, so I said to the girls, um, we're, I could see lights. And Mike heard this and somehow managed to unharness himself and <laughs> comes out of the deck holding his map. We're back on maps again saying, Yay. Go in, go in. I know where we are. Go in. And <laughs> I had to kick him downstairs again and just went round in a circle until the light came up. Of course, there was massive cliffs where he said, go in. And it had been a lighthouse, and he thought it was uh, it was like street lights or something. So we finally went in. We were blown a hundred miles off course down to the down on the north coast of Spain, and 
went up this river and had to try and repair the trash boat after I'd managed to drag him to a dentist where they had his his tooth pulled out. Oh, <laughs> He's finally recovered. But that that was that was an interesting scar. But it is map related, so I'm pleased to. See. It is. I mean, I'm getting with Mike there. I'm getting vibes of the the pilot that's lost the plot in Lord of the Flies type thing. There, all bandaged yeah. up, and and you know, what I mean, there's there's a bit of that in Mike. Uh, Dave, what do you want to say? I've never been across the Bay of Biscay, but I was once on an Alaman ferry that did everything bar sink. <laughs> we were on the top deck, and the sea was above the window on the top deck. So that's not right. Everybody yeah. was green. It was. Ter- <laughs> it's, 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 it's it's no Biscay, but it was terrible. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, well, one thing, you know, um, Steve and Dave, in terms of the Scarred for Life books and, and some of this kind of horrific stuff that was on telly in the 70s and 80s and everything like that, in terms of being at sea, is that is that a, a area of, of, of fiction that's used a lot in, in any of these TV series? Or, or is, it too, is it too difficult to recreate that if you're, like, no, trying to make no. something on a budget? There was, there was the um, Fantastic Voyage. There was a 70s sci-fi series about... A group of people on it. It's it's exactly almost the same kind of story that Ian's just told, except it culminates with them getting sucked into the Bermuda Triangle and into another dimension. So at least you escape that, Ian, because they've got to kind of fight to get home. triangle trapped in a dimension with beings from the future and from other worlds a party of adventurers journeys through zones of time back to their own time there was a kid show called the lost islands from i think it was new zealand in the 70s and again a, a huge storm erupts with on a boat with um, all kinds of waves flying everywhere, but this boat comes to rest in the middle of nowhere in this strange barrier reef with two islands close together. Uh, there's a load of kids who've got to kind of escape from the warlord that runs these two lost islands. So there is a, a strong vein of kind of boat-related mishap scars going on in the 70s and 80s, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and it's good to have a, a nautical scar uh, coming into the podcast as well there. Ian, thank you for that. So I want to go back to the school trips thing. I've got a scar I've just remembered from the school trip. We went to Malham in Yorkshire, uh, which has apparently got a very fine example of a limestone pavement. Uh, and we're on the bus on the way there, nice. and, the ki- and the kid next to me says, have you got your lunch there, mate? So I handed him a lunchbox, and he threw up in it so, oh. uh, because he, he was, he was <laughs> travel sick. And he threw up in my lunchbox. So somewhere in Yorkshire, there's a well. At the bottom of the well is my lunchbox. And that's, oh. I've just remembered that. That's troubled me for years. That. It's like a, a terrible bit of geocaching going on right there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and to, uh, to make it worse, my foot got stuck down the limestone pavement. <laughs> what, what, a, what a time you had. Some <laughs> terrible kind of, I mean, Ian Scars this week, we've we've had many guests on and, I think this is the first time we've had genuine life-threatening disaster movies. Yes. Scars. Yeah. Well, if you look at it, the thing that connects Ian Scars, you've got um, lawnmower injury, obviously someone else in charge of the lawnmower, teacher losing the plot on Kinder Scout, nearly, you know, getting a load of kids completely lost. Um, main 
captain on a boat, um, not not taking leave of his senses in the Bay of Biscay. It's almost the connecting theme there, Ian, is, is people that should be in control of, stu- of stuff not being in control of it and you having to step in. Yeah, and so I have to blame them for, for them really having me um, knocked off. So my revenge in fighting fantasy is to send everybody else to their doom so I get the joy back. <laughs> yes. Luring people, luring people to their death. Oh, you think you're going to find a treasure chest here? Well, actually, you're going to fall on spikes. <laughs> yes, the old trap, the old trap chest. Well, that's that. That is fantastic, uh, Ian. It's been amazing to have you uh, on the podcast. Obviously, you know, we even just looking at your back wall there. There's so many things you've created. You've got so many projects on the go. What is next for you then, uh, in terms of things that you're working on, Ian? Well, I, I'm never going to retire. I'm 73 years old now, and I, I love the industry. I love the people in it. So uh, I'm I'm very much involved. I sits on the board of a number of games companies. I'm writing another book called Magic Realms, which the history of the art and artists have worked with fighting fantasy over the years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Iceman just came out, which is doing really well. I was in Paris last week promoting the French edition. Um, I have my own school in, in Bournemouth, the Livingstone Academy. It's a state school. It's not a private school, which opened officially a couple of months ago. And that's that's going great. That's all about what I talk about in terms of game-based learning, project-based learning, skills as well as qualifications, know-how as well as knowledge, a good kind of digital creative component and a good arts education. Kind of using your left and the right side of your brain to make people work ready and world ready, working in teams, collaborating, and participation in their learning. So you can have a kind of learning by doing, which I think is a a strong mantras come from from fighting fantasy, from board games, from role playing games. Understanding not just the power of play, but how connecting people together, even though they're all different, can do great things together. Whereas the education system tends to focus on siloed subjects and and working in silos, yeah. which doesn't represent the 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 world as it is. So. That's very much part of what I do. I'm also a, a partner in a, in a venture capital fund, believe it or not. We invest in video games, video game studios, connected fitness and wellness. So even whilst I'm way too old to run a new company these days, I like to uh, put my finger in everybody else's pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then, you know, just one final question. If you were to go onto a desert island, you're only allowed to take one of the fighting fantasy books with you. Ian, which one would you take? Oh, how can you say that to me? I know, I'm sorry. It's a tough one. <laughs> well, uh, emotionally, I should take Walker Fight Up Mountain because that's the first one I wrote with Steve Jackson. But if if you're talking about my own personal favourite, I think I'm going to go for City of Thieves. Great choice. Oh, Fantastic excellent. front cover for that as well. Well, listen, it's been a real honour to have you on the podcast. Uh, brilliant to chat to a legend. Sir Ian Livingston, thank you so much. My pleasure. Been thank great. you very much. May your stamina never fail. well a big thank you again uh, to Ian Uh, it's been great to chat to him Uh, we've got another listener scar for you before we leave you this week and again this focuses around dolls and well mannequins this This is from Ian from Leeds also a former uh, Forbidden Planet employee big up the uh, Forbidden Planet massive he says guys my scar is a shop mannequin in particular the ones from the 70s and early 80s I was born in 73 so I was a small child in the 70s and a preteen in the 80s I would run screaming from department stores with my mum in absolute fear. Nowadays, mannequins are quite featureless and shapeless, sometimes even headless. But when I was a kid, they were creepy, realistic, 
in a cold, artificial kind of way. I was so terrified of them that I would have reoccurring nightmares about mannequins coming to life, dragging me into the store and turning me into one of them. He adds, really enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. God bless you, Ian. Proper spearhead from space vibes there, yeah. Yeah, mannequins are terrifying. The, the, the ones that have the faces. Do you know what? There's a shop in Liverpool now that has uh, mannequin heads, basically, and they've put, like, V for Vendetta masks and horror masks on them all in the window. Oh, and it's, all, it's, it's, it's. I think it sells wigs. It's a wig shop, and they got wigs, but the, the heads are terrifying. <laughs> There's something about shop Yeah, he's right. There's something about what shop but window is. It's not that's right. The thing, but what he said about them... The old style mannequins that yeah. they did use in Doctor Who back in the day, those kind of, like, you know, the Autons, they were featureless yeah. and ex- expressionless, but they looked semi real, which yeah. gave you yeah. the uncanny valley revulsion, I think. That that caused a lot of problems as well, didn't it? Because there was a lot of complaints because they had a, a mannequin that was disguised as a policeman. That's uh, right. And that caused a massive furore back in the day because they didn't want to show policemen as being threatening. The, the, a policeman was going to, his hand was going to fold down, there's going to be a gun inside his hand, he's going to shoot you to death. <laughs> they, they, they didn't want kids to think that of policemen. Of course. Yeah, that would have been, that was huge, wasn't it? That was a massive, yeah. yeah. I feel like this podcast is going to get like um, EastEnders. We've got to give out some form of uh, a thing at the end where there's people standing by to take your call if you're traumatised <laughs> by anything you've heard. But uh, we do love hearing from you. Get in touch uh, at Scarred for Life 2 if you're on Twitter, Scarred for Life Book if you're on Insta, contact at scarredforlifebooks.com if you want to drop us an email, or just go and get the books because they're fantastic. You have been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you so much for joining us. A big thank you again to Sir Ian Livingston. And remember, do have nightmares, and we'll see you next week. 